if I were to think about what's sort of the perfect environment for sending out things that are lies or misinformation or half-truths and getting people to start believing that they are true, Twitter would be a pretty good way to do it. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Only two things determine the quality of your life the quality of your decisions, and luck. If you want to make better decisions, this podcast interview is for you. Today, my guest is Annie Duke. She's an author, a speaker, and a consultant in the decision-making space. Her latest book, How to Decide Simple Tools for Making Better Choices, will be out soon, soon being October of 2020. Her previous book, Thinking in Bets, is a national bestseller. She's a former professional poker player. She's won more than $4 million playing tournament poker before she retired in 2012. Annie was awarded a National Science Foundation Fellowship to study cognitive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Annie is the co-founder of the Alliance for Decision Education, a nonprofit whose mission is to improve lives by empowering students through decision skills education. Don't you wish you learned decision-making skills when you were in school? I know I do. Annie coaches and speaks on topics including decision fitness, emotional control, productive decision groups, and embracing uncertainty. You can learn more about Annie at her website, AnnieDuke.com. You can follow her on Twitter at Annie Duke. I always envy people who get their own name on Twitter. And you can also visit, I think I said she was a co-founder of the Alliance for Decision Education, which you can learn about. You can learn more about her work at the Alliance for Decision Education.org. She obliterates what I thought was the best decision-making tool available to me, which was a pros and cons list. Annie tells us why it's actually not an effective tool for making good decisions. And she walks us through a six-step process that we can use to make better decisions more effectively. Annie also talks about how we can get past analysis paralysis. Oh, she also talks about something called the happiness test, a guide we can use, again, to help make better decisions. I really found this book, How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices, to be a very valuable read. I hope you do too, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Annie Duke. Annie, welcome to the School for Good Living. Well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Annie, will you tell me, please, what's life about? Oh my gosh. That is such an interesting question. Uh, I have to tell you, no one's ever asked me that question. Isn't that interesting? I mean, you know, besides my child. So here, this is what I will tell you. I love this question. You can cut out all of this stuff, but here's what I'll tell you. So when I was in high school, despite the fact that I'm not Episcopalian, I went to an Episcopalian high school. And as part of that in your junior year, you had to take religion. And one of the things that you did in the fall, everybody in their junior year at this school had to read a Protestant philosopher named Paul Tillich. 
you know, and again, like I'm not, I'm, I'm actually not particularly religious. My dad's Jewish. We were sort of not religious in the household, but you know, I'm going to this religious school. So we read Paul Tillich and it's a book called the dynamics of faith. And there's something in there that he talks about, which is called existential disappointment. And by the time, what, you know, as I was reading this, a 16 year old, it made this huge impression on me. And essentially what he says is this, that if you have goals in life that are finite, things like I want to make a million dollars. When you set those types of goals that are finite, you'll often have accompanying things around that, that which would follow, which is, and then I'll be happy. So I want to make a million dollars, then I'll be happy. And what he says is that when you have those types of goals, that when you actually reach them, you will experience existential disappointment, meaning that you will find out that your existence doesn't really change at all from the day before you have a million dollars to the day after. And this would be true, like, if I move into a bigger house, I'll be happy. If I do this, if I do, you know, we all have these types of things. If I get a better job, if I get the promotion, I'll be happy. So what he says is that you're sort of delaying the work that you need to do along the way because you're sort of pinning your hopes on this finite goal. And then when you hit the finite goal, you'll experience this existential disappointment, which will be this moment of a real crisis of who you are. So his, he's using this as an argument for belief in God, which is obviously the goal to be closer to God and express God, your relationship to God through faith, love, and action, which is what he talks about, would be an infinite goal. It's, it's one that you are always striving toward. And then this is actually going to define your existence better. Now, that is not the way that I think about it because I don't, I don't have that type of relationship. But I think that this is something that anybody can take, regardless of whether expressed, it's expressed through a religious belief that they have or something that is more spiritual or something that's just more, what are you striving for? And for me, the meaning of life is to really honestly, to try to do better every day and to understand that good things are going to happen and bad things are going to happen in your life. And there are certain things that you can't control and some that you can. And if you're really focusing on being really trying to improve those things that you do have some control over and completely accepting the things that you don't, that is actually kind of what the meaning of life is, is that always striving for that infinite. You can be striving until your last breath to, to improve at your ability to accept luck, you know, accept the things that, that are just, you know, you can't control, you know, the people that you can't influence and so on and so forth. And really strive to do better at the things that are sort of in your influence. And that really comes from this religious philosopher, that, this Protestant philosopher that I read it when I was 16. So I don't know if that was a good answer for you, but that's my answer. Wow. Uh, that's amazing to read that book in, in high school or as a teenager and have the benefit of that perspective living forward. Oh, you know, I still have it on my shelf. And, and people who know me because they know I'm not religious. I, I'm quite confused that I have this Protestant philosopher on myself <laughs> on my shelf, but I have to say it's one of the most meaningful books for me that I've read. It made a deep impression on me when I was 16. And, you know, I think that as I've gone through life, I've gotten better at kind of really taking those lessons in and expressing them in the, in the way that I live my life, you know, much more so than when I was younger, but it definitely made an impression on me when I was younger. And I have, I have carried that book around with me for my whole life. Wow. That's awesome. Thank you for that. 
Well, and you've devoted a significant part of your life to helping understand how to make decisions effectively, right? So you're the perfect person for me to ask this. Why are so many of us so bad at making decisions? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So so first of all, let me just say this, that obviously human beings have survived very well. So, you know, in that sense, our decisions are kind of programmed to be pretty good. The, the problem is that I don't know how well they're programmed for the like the modern world where it's not just about like running away from lions so that you can survive. But I, I think there's two reasons that we tend to, to sort of falter in our decisions. The first one has to do with something that's really popular in what people talk about, which is like biases and heuristics, that a lot of what we do is kind of take shortcuts. Like, you know, everything, is, we're, we're very efficient. This, this is what evolution selects for is efficiency. And so we take lots of shortcuts. And the thing about those shortcuts is mostly they work, but then also they don't. And when they don't, they have like a, a really big impact, you know, on your outcome. So, so here's an example of where mostly it works, but then it doesn't. And it's something called availability bias. So when you're trying to judge how frequent something is, right? Like if I said to you, like, you know, how, how likely is it that you, do you think that there, someone's going to die in a fire? Or I were to say to you, like, how likely is it that, that somebody drowns in a swimming pool? Like, how often is that occurring per million people or something like that? The likelihood is that you would really overestimate the number of per, per people per million that die in fires and underestimate the number of people per million each year that die in a swimming pool. And the reason for that is that we have this heuristic, this shortcut for figuring out frequency, because obviously you're not a supercomputer who can scan a database and find out like, well, how many people did die in a fire last year? How many people did die in a, you know, a swimming pool last year? So you take the shortcut, which is that the easier it is to remember, the more frequent you think it is. And mostly that works pretty well because things that you come across more frequently are easier to remember. So this is like a pretty reasonable shortcut most of the time, except when it's not, because many more people die in bathtubs than in fires. And this actually will affect like public policy, for example. So we spend a lot more money on terrorism, which is actually relatively low threat, and much, much less money on making sure that like swimming pools are safe, which actually is a big, a much higher threat. And we can see like actually one of the places where a heuristic goes poorly is what's happening with misinformation and, and kind of fake news and social media. So one of the ways that we, we kind of figure out like to use Stephen Colbert, like the truthiness of something is by processing fluency. So what's processing fluency? It's related to, the, to this thing about availability bias. It's like how easy is it to recall? How easy is it for me to understand it? So things that are simpler feel more true because it's easier for me to understand it. But also another way that you get processing fluency is repetition. The more that I've heard something, the more likely I think it's true. Another way you get processing fluency is if there's a picture. This is making me think of the, the Joseph Goebbels quote about if you say a lie loud enough, long enough, people will believe it. That is totally true. Yeah. And then, and then like, if there's a picture with it, we think it's more true as well. Because like, if I say giraffes are the only mammals that can't jump and I've got a picture of a giraffe, it just sort of like it increases the processing fluency. I can kind of understand it a little bit better. Well, you can see how that's really bad for Twitter, which is like a replication machine of simple messages. You can only say it in 280 characters with pictures. So if I were to think about what's sort of the perfect environment for sending out things that are lies or misinformation or half-truths and getting people to start believing that they are true, 
Twitter would be a pretty good way to do it. So that's a place where like a shortcut that mostly works, if it's simple and easy to understand, it's probably more likely to be true that most of the time that works. But in this particular case, it doesn't work. So that that's kind of on that side. And then the other reason I think, so we have these heuristics, but the other reason I think that people kind of falter in their decision-making is simply because they don't have a process that nobody's ever told them, hey, if you want to make a decision, like here's how you would go about doing it. And I kind, you know what I kind of think about it? Like you don't think much about walking, right? Not usually. Because you've been doing it since you get like before you can remember, like before you have a memory, you're, you were walking. And so you don't really think about, well, what's the process of walking? Like if I wanted to walk, how would I go about doing that? Because you kind of assume you're sort of good at it because you've been doing it forever. And decision-making is kind of the same thing. Like you've been making decisions as, at least as long as you've been walking. And so feels like you kind of know how to do it because you've been doing it forever. And yeah, I think that people don't really think about like, really, what is my decision process? Like, how would I go about doing it? Like, what is my walking process? How would I go about doing it? And I, so I think that that's another thing is that I think that there's lots of times when we're not even aware we have decisions that we don't know that we're making decisions and we don't really have a, a clear process for making them. Yeah. And, and that's, that's remarkable too, because it's something we're always doing, always. right? As long as we're awake, as long as we're conscious and, and in your new book, how to decide simple tools for making better choices. Of course, that's what you write about and some of what you share really blew my mind. Like you talk about how long the average person spends deciding what to eat, what to watch on Netflix and what to wear. Yeah. You mind if I share what those numbers were? Please here? do. Just, it's, it's really mind blowing. It really is. And, 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 and it also remind me that social scientists will study anything and everything, right? Like somebody followed people around and quantified that. And this is a, such a great trivia question too, that people on average and of course, I think this is this isn't clearly in developing countries, right? well, of course. but, but <laughs> you have to, have to eat, you got to have Netflix, you got to have food, you got to have clothes to wear. But but people spend on average 150 minutes a week deciding what to eat, 50 minutes a week deciding what to watch on Netflix and 90 to 115 minutes a week deciding what to wear, all of which adds up to 250 to 275 per I'm sorry, all of which adds up to 250 to 275 hours per year deciding just those three things. Yeah, it's like six, it's like six to seven work weeks. That's amazing. And those are only three decisions and they recur. I know. Right. <laughs> so you talk about the fact that, OK, so we're faced constantly, like unavoidably with decisions. And they so they fill such a large part of our life and they determine to an incredible degree the quality of our lives. But we don't have a process. Well, they're actually the only thing that, so there's only two things that determine the quality of your life. One of them, I talked about, like when you asked me sort of what's the meaning of life, right? I should have, by the way, now that I think about it, I should have quoted Monty Python. Missed opportunity, we'll say, right? You just watch the Monty Python movie to find out the meaning of life. Just a little thin wafer, just one more, it's a little thin wafer. <laughs> but at any rate, yeah, so there's only two things that determine how your life turns out. And this is what we talked about when we were talking about sort of what, what you know, what's the meaning of life, one of them's luck. And the thing about luck is you can't do anything about it. I had no control over when I was born or where I was born or who my parents were or how tall or short I am. Or there's other things that you can think about in terms of luck, like people you don't have control over. I can't control Vladimir Putin. Whatever he does from my perspective is completely luck. I don't have control over geopolitical events, sadly. I'm not the ruler of the free world, you know, what can I do? So we have all of this luck that's occurring, right? So, and you know, and it's not just the traditional, like, oh, I got in an accident, that was bad luck or, but it's also like these geopolitical events kind of like 
what environment are you living in? All of that is luck. Can't do anything about it. And I know that people say you make your own luck, but it's just not true. You make decisions that determine what the influence of luck might or might not be. In other words, I can make a decision that's going to work out 60% of the time and not 40% of the time. And obviously you can think about if that 40% of the time happens, maybe that's bad luck. Um, But maybe I have another option that's available to me that's going to work out 90% of the time and not work out 10% of the time. Now, it's still not going to work out 10% of the time. That's a matter of luck. I can't help that. But I can change how often I might have a bad or a good outcome. That's why your decisions are so important. It's the one thing. There's luck and the quality of your decisions. That is it. Those are the only two things that determine how your life turns out. So you can't do much about luck except to reduce the sort of reduce the chances of, of bad luck happening that you can do that. You have to, you have to focus on the quality of your decisions. It's everything. It's the only thing you have control over. And for some people, they have control over so little, you know, their, their, their circumstances are so bad that they're in that if they can just move the needle a little bit on on the quality of their decisions, it's it's going to really have a big impact on on the way that your life turns out. Yeah, no, that that makes sense to me, and it, it definitely squares with something my dad used to say. He would tell me that the quality of my life was in direct relation to the quality of decisions I made, which it sounds pretty simple. You know, it's it's one of those things that's maybe easy to say, but like you said, where we don't, where we have biases and we use heuristics and we don't have a process that then we go our, 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 what do we say? Our skill in decision-making is more restricted than it would be if we had an awareness and the, the tools that you write about in your book. And, I, and so I want to ask you about a, a few of those tools, but before I do one thing you talk about early in the book that again, it, it blew my mind because I could see it in my own life, but I hadn't realized I was collapsing these things of when you say, when you ask people about their best and worst decisions, that they will tell you not about the decision, but about the outcome, right? Will you, will you talk about that? And you even, you even give a name to this phenomenon, but what is the, what do you call this and, and why do we do it and how can we stop doing it? Yeah. So, so the phenomenon is called resulting and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's, we know the, the quality of the outcome. Did we win or lose? Did it go well or poorly? And what we do is it's one of those shortcuts that we take. And we say, if I know the quality of the outcome, then I should know the quality of the decision. In other words, a good outcome must mean it was a good decision. A bad outcome must mean it was a bad decision. So I've done this with thousands of people where I say, what's your best decision of the last year? And they always say, oh, you know, I decided to move to a new house and I'm so happy there. Right. And nobody ever says, like, I decided to move to a new house. And it turned out that there was a problem with the foundation that there was nobody, you know, nobody could have anticipated. And in fact, that would be their worst decision right? Even if, and this is the key that I want to say, the process of choosing the house was exactly the same. You had the same inspectors come in either way. You looked at just as many houses. You tried to figure out, you know, what you could afford, what your monthly payment was, what your neighborhood you wanted to live in, so on. So we can go through all the things that would go into making that a high quality decision. And then sometimes you move into the house and it's amazing. And sometimes you move into the house and it turns out that Nobody disclosed to you that there's like a rave happening next door every single night. But you don't know that because you never visited the house at midnight, which seems like would be pretty reasonable as part of your decision process not to do that. And then all of a sudden you have a rave next door, right? Like there's just, you know, we don't really allow for the fact that 
the quality of our decisions can only be as good as like the knowledge that we have at the time of the decision. And the one thing that we don't have is a time machine. So we don't know how it's going to turn out. Basically what we're doing when we do that is we're kind of playing the wrong game. So let, let me explain. Let's say that two people play chess, like Morgan and Taylor play chess. And I come to you and I say, oh, hey, Morgan and Taylor played a game of chess and Morgan won. And then I say, brilliant. Which one made better decisions in chess, Morgan or Taylor? And what would your answer be? Well, clearly it's Morgan. Right. And that's correct because it's chess. And in chess, you don't have luck. In other words, like you do, I mean, there's luck, but it's not a strong influence in the sense that like you don't roll the dice and, oh, look, brilliant got a seven. He gets an extra bishop and he rolled snake eyes and it's checkmate. Like that's just, it doesn't happen that way. And there's also no lack of information. Like Morgan and Taylor can each see all the, the, you know, the, the pieces on the board. And it's not like part of the board is hidden from view and they're trying to guess what that board looks like. And what that means is that in there resulting totally makes sense. If Morgan won, Morgan made better decisions. But now, Brandon, what if I come to you with a different game? And I say, well, Morgan and Taylor played poker for the same amount of time that this chess game would have taken. So let's say they played for an hour. And Morgan won some of Taylor's money. Morgan came out ahead. So now my question to you is which one made better decisions? I would be inclined to think that Morgan made better decisions. I could say, yeah, he maybe got lucky, but if he's the winner of a game as complex as poker, he probably made better decisions over the course of that hour. Right. So let's figure this out. So in the chess example, how much of your net worth are you willing to bet that Morgan made the better decisions because Morgan won? Ooh. (laughs) In chess, when they played chess. I would say a large degree. A large of it. Right. Okay, great. Yeah. Now, in poker, how much are you willing to bet that Morgan was the better decision maker because Morgan won in an hour? Oh, man. I'm not much of a poker player, but I know there are such things as bad beats, and I would say I wouldn't bet anything. <laughs> I wouldn't there bet you anything. Go. So, see, even though you have this thing that's trying to tell you that Morgan was better at poker, when I ask you to put your money on it, all of a sudden I real- you reveal, like, wait a minute, there's a whole bunch of other reasons that Morgan could have lost because maybe Morgan had a bad beat. So that's what that reveals to you. So basically what's happening is that some of the simplest decisions that we make every single day, like whether we proceed through a green light or a red light, these are much more poker-like because we know that people can proceed through green lights and get in accidents and people can proceed through red lights and get through fine, not even get a ticket. So life's decisions are very poker-like, but we treat them as chess-like, right? We're like, oh yeah, if I know how it turned out, then that's everything that I need to know. And, and basically it's like, what I sort of always sort of say is like, that's what makes people say they've drive better when they're drunk, even though everybody knows that. But you know, I've actually heard people say that in my life. Like I've, I've you know, I've never gotten in an accident when I was drunk. I actually drive better when I'm drunk. And it's like, mm, I think you're resulting. Let's remember you're playing poker, not chess. Yeah. And that example, I love the the red light, green light example, because that brings this down and puts it again in a simple frame that I think people can see pretty clearly. Just like you said, you can go through a green light and get in an accident. It doesn't mean it was a bad decision to go through the green light. We all go through green lights. That's how we, that's how we agree to operate, right? And conversely, you could get behind the wheel intoxicated, or you could run a red light and it, you could get home just fine, but it still doesn't make that a good decision. That's right. And, and we can think about that with much more complicated decisions, right? Like For example, like if you're trying to decide where to go to college, it's like you go, you visit the campus, you maybe you stay over a night with someone, you know, they have those kinds of opportunities. You, you know, you look at what the majors are that's available. You're thinking about what are the things that you would like. 
and you're you're doing that but the thing that you haven't done is actually experience the college like because you can't because we're not omniscient and we're not fortune tellers and we don't have a crystal ball and all those things so you do all of that due diligence right and now you choose the college that you go to you've thought about do i want to be at a big university do i want to be at like small liberal arts like do i want stem do i want what you know you figured all that stuff out you go to the college and we know that 37% of people transfer and some larger percentage than that in that's just in the first year the large some larger percentage of that are probably unhappy but stick it out did those people make a bad decision to go to that college no they made the same decision now i'm not saying that people can't choose a college for stupid reasons like following their high school sweetheart to college. I would say that's a pretty bad reason to choose a college, right? But assuming that you've done all the things that generally people do when they're choosing colleges, there's just certain things you can't know. And just because it didn't turn out well doesn't make it a bad decision. But when you ask people what was your worst decision in the last year, they'll say, I chose to go to this college and I was so unhappy there. It's like, but that wasn't a bad decision. That's a bad outcome. Yeah. No. And, and again, I think where this is, I mean, personally, as one who loves ideas and who loves philosophy and, and so forth, like I, I'm just fascinated by this in and of itself, but then to give it a practical application, you know, hopefully people listening to this or people who pick up your book who didn't know they were even doing this thing. They didn't know they were resulting. And now they can a maybe be a bit more compassionate when they have a bad outcome knowing that, no, you did, in fact, make a, a sound decision. And conversely, that they're not just continuing to make decisions that are poor decisions based on favorable outcomes. But this is then leads me to this thing, because I know you have this, what I thought was, again, a really useful and insightful six-step model for making a, a six-step process for making better decisions. But you proceed it by just obliterating you know, the best decision-making tool I might have had available, which was the pros and cons list. <laughs> I do. I'm not a fan of a pros and cons list. Let me say that. No, I'm not either after yeah. reading your book. Oh, good. But, but I know, you know, many people think, oh, I'll just do the Ben Franklin thing. Draw a line down a page and here's why I should and why I shouldn't. But why is a pros and cons list not actually an effective way to make a, a good decisions? Oh, that's such a great question. So uh, can I just, I just want to circle back to one thing because you mentioned compassion on resulting. When you sure, realize sure. about resulting, I think one of the key things is not just compassion toward yourself, but compassion toward other people. Because we point fingers at other people all the time, like, oh, you made a bad decision. You should have known. Why did you do that stupid thing? When just like us, a lot of times it's like, well, given the information they had at the time, it was a perfectly good decision. And I, I, I think that resulting just like, it's like, a, you know, causes us to lack compassion kind of like all around. So I just wanted to sort of lift that up. That makes me good. So here's the deal with the pros and cons list. First of all, let me say it's better than nothing at all. Is it better than our gut? Well, no, <laughs> not really. And the reason <laughs> is that it's an expression of your gut. And that's actually okay. part of the problem with the pros and cons list. So let me talk about that sort of the two separate problems with pros and cons list. So I'm going to start with why just in terms of like trying to objectively exa examine a decision, it's not particularly good because of its format. So let me explain the format problem. A pros and cons list is just a, a flat list, right? It's like you draw, as you said, you draw the line down the middle, you put the pros on one side and the cons on the other side. So how do I compare those two things? Like, is it like if, it, if there's more pros, then I go for it. And if, or if there's mo more cons, I don't. Like, I'm not exactly sure because I need to know two things. And it has to do with dimension. So a list lacks this dimension. And there's two dimensions that it lacks. One is, explicitly stating sort of what the magnitude of the good stuff is and what the magnitude of the bad stuff is. Because if you were to think about, for example, someone trying to decide whether to start up a company, 
and they did a pros and cons list, zero people would ever start up a company because there's like 70 million cons. And then there's this one pro, like I might become a billionaire, <laughs> right? Or I might solve the world's problems, right? But it's only one. The, the issue is like, I could bring clean water to the whole world, but it's really high magnitude. But that's not listed on, you know, it's like you've got this one thing, like if it works, I could bring clean water to the whole world. And then it's like, I could lose all my money. This could never get off the ground. I'm going to have to work, you know, a hundred hours a week. My family's never going to see me. I'm going to have to deal with employees and customers. <laughs> right. So you can yeah. see how if you just on a pros and cons list, you'd be like, well, I don't really know how to judge that because you haven't put in anything explicit about like, how much is the pro side of the list helping you advance toward your goals versus how much is the con side of the list causing you to retreat away? And then in order to really understand that, you don't just need to know like the magnitude of like how good or bad the thing is, but you also have to know how likely it is which is really, really important. It's like, I need to know if there's a con on there, which is like, I could get in a car accident, okay? So that might be a con to something. I need to know, is that gonna happen one out of 100 times? Or is it gonna happen 60 out of 100 times? Like this, it really matters how often it's gonna happen. And pros and cons lists don't allow you to express likelihood anywhere. And that's the one thing, like, if there's one thing I could change about people's decision processes, it would be get likelihood in there. Think about how likely something is to occur because otherwise it's very hard to do this. So that's kind of the first problem is that I don't really know how to compare the two sides of the list. And if I don't know how to compare the two sides of the list, it makes it very hard if I'm thinking about two different options. Do I want to go to college A or college B or take job A or job B or take, you know, start a company or take a, a more traditional job or whatever it is. I wouldn't really know how to compare them because I can't even do it for the one option. That's the first problem. The second problem is this. You, we talked a little bit about these kinds of heuristics and biases that mess up our decision making. And we know that these kinds of like shortcuts that our brains take in the way that we're like overconfident or like confirmation bias, which is just we really like to interact with information that confirms the things we already believe and all of this stuff. So we know, we know that we've got these issues. What happens with the pros and cons list, and this is really well documented, is that it's, it really becomes an expression of those biases. It's a way to amplify them. And what we're really trying to do with a good decision process is to clamp those down. We're trying to get to something that's a little bit more objective. And a pros and cons list actually makes us less objective. And you can see why that is, right? Like, ooh, do I wanna do this? Well, guess what? When you start your pros and cons list, in your head, you've already made the decision. You know, like, am I leaning toward it? Or am I leaning away? And then someone says, why don't you make a pre pros and cons list? But you already have a lean. You're either leaning in or out. What's going to happen is that if it's something that you kind of really want to do, you're going to end up with a lot of pros. If it's something that you kind of don't want to do, you're going to end up with a lot of cons. And you can see how that is because there's kind of no rules. Like what do you have to put an exhausted list? Are you talking about like an overall category? Like a, it might be a lot of my time. Or are you saying I'm going to have to work 80 hours a week? And then you put a second con, which is like, I'm going to be busy on weekends, right? So now I just turned one con into two, right? And so there's, there's all these things where essentially what happens is there's this pattern that's called motivated reasoning. And it's a really good concept for people to understand. And motivated reasoning basically goes like this. When we're reasoning about things, it's very often the case that we think that we're thinking about the problem objectively and thinking about all the information. And then that's that's causing us to believe certain things. Like, should we do something or not? 
is something true or isn't it? Should I, should I go to this college or go to this college, right? And, but we think about the information objectively. But what motivated reasoning shows is that it actually kind of reverts in the reverse, that we have an idea of what's true. We have an idea of what we want to believe. We have an idea of what the decision is that we want to make. And then that causes us to process the information in a way that supports this thing that we already want to believe. No more, just if you doubt this for any second, I just want you to go on Twitter and watch different people from different sides of the aisle talk about the exact same information. And you'll see that they use that in a way to support the beliefs they already have. And very rarely do they adjust the beliefs to fit the information. And that, like, it's just a big expression of motivated reasoning. Yeah. And I've definitely seen that. And we know that facts and data don't persuade or convince maybe anybody. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, some people, some people are open minded, but you can see how like a yeah. pros and cons list would be like a tool for motivated reasoning, right? It would be a way for you to like have this veneer. And this is always really bad. It's a veneer of objectivity. It's a veneer of a good decision process. So it makes you feel like your decision is more certified but it's really just a tool for motivated reasoning. In other words, it's just taking whatever that gut feeling you have is, which is like, I either want to do the decision or not. And it's sort of putting it on paper to certify the decision that didn't really have a good process behind it. Well, then that's where, and you mentioned a few of the things in this six-step process, but is there a simple way that you explain this to help people not only understand it, but remember it and apply it? Yeah. Well, hopefully, let's try. If it's not simple, you can tell me and I can try <laughs> So basically, let, let's just start back at resulting for a second. And because this leads you into what, why you need this six-step process. So the problem with resulting is this, that when you make a decision, there's lots of ways that a decision could turn out. So you, you choose a college, you choose a job. It could turn out amazing. It could turn out like meh. You know, it could turn out horrible and you hate your boss and whatever. Like, you know, you order something in the restaurant and it could be an amazing dish. It could be kind of bland. It could be like a terrible, the worst thing you ever ate. So whenever we make a decision, there's a variety of ways that it could turn out. Basically what happens with resulting is that once you know what the actual result is, once you know what the outcome is, we sort of forget that all those other things could have happened. We just lose sight of them. So it just feels like, and this, like super inevitable. Like the reason why we think that if I, if I hate the college that I went to, it must have been a bad decision is because we're losing sight of the fact that there were all sorts of other ways that that decision could have turned out. We just forget about it. I love the way you describe this. I mean, we've all probably heard the term, but the fact that you give, again, this metaphor about a decision tree Yeah. that in every moment, a decision tree exists. But when we look back, we only see the branch we took. Exactly. Like I, I think about it as like the cognitive chainsaw. So at the moment that you make a decision, you can sort of think about looking up at the branches of the tree and there's all sorts of different ways the future could unfold. And we can sort of see all these branches of the tree, but we know that we only any individual only has one past. That's like the trunk of the tree. So what happens is that once we sort of know what the result is, we take this cognitive chainsaw, like our minds take out that chainsaw and like rev it up and we lop off all those other possible branches. And that's how we end up with these problems, like resulting in hindsight bias. So that's why I just wanted to start there because that gives you a hint to what a good decision process is, which is to make sure that you're thinking about what are those different possibilities that could unfold in the future. So that's kind of the first thing you have to do is what, what are these possibilities that could happen? If I'm considering a decision, let me think about the different ways it could turn out. Not a pros and cons list because 
we want to know a way that we could really balance those. So you think about what the possibilities are for how something could turn out. And then you think about what are my preferences for those things? Which things would I generally group into kind of good stuff, things that I'd love to have happen that will help me get to my goal? And which things do I think as kind of the bad stuff, things would, which would call me, cause me to retreat away from my goal? And once we sort of have that, those preferences, like here, here are the things that I would prefer to happen and here are the things that I would prefer not to happen, we can sort of call that the upside and downside, right? Here's the upside of the decision, here's the downside of the decision. And now you have to take this other step. So once we have this divided into to the upside and the downside, we want to think about what the likelihood of those things occurring is. And that's kind of what we talked about with the pros and cons list. Like it's kind of hard to know how would I balance out the good stuff from the bad stuff if I didn't know how likely it was to occur. So, so And then once I have that, I can generally see for this thing that I'm thinking about, for this particular option, what are the chances that something good comes of it and what are the chances that something bad comes from it? Now I can go back and repeat that for any other options that I'm thinking about. And I actually have a way to compare them. I can think about, okay, here's option A and option B. Which one has the higher likelihood of something like occurring? Now, one of the biggest pushbacks I get to this thing is like, but how, how can I know how often something's going to happen? It's in the future. And I, I understand that pushback, right? But basically what I try to say to people is, look, you know a lot more than you think you do. It just gets a, like, I know that when you're guessing about stuff, it feels like I'm guessing, why should I try? But there's almost nothing that you can guess about that you don't know something about. And what you have to do is think about every guess that you make is actually an educated guess. And the question is just how much educated is there in there? So let me, let me give you an example of an educated guess. So you can't see what my computer is sitting on, right? No, I don't see it. So I'll tell you, I'll just give you a name to the thing it's sitting on. It's sitting on a table, but I haven't told you anything about the table, right? It's just a table. It's sitting on a table. So let me ask you a question. How much does this table weigh? hundred pounds. And what do you think the lowest amount it could weigh is? 15. And what's the bit highest amount you can weigh? It could weigh. Oh man. I would say like a big, heavy oak dining table. If it happened to be that it might weigh as much as 600 pounds. That's amazing. Yeah. You can't even see the table. Like. Think about what you just did. You, you just eliminated like a huge range of what this thing could weigh that my computer is sitting on and you can't even see it. That, that's the thing. It's like, you know so much about the world. You have a really good sense. Like if I said to you, when you get into a car, how likely is it that you get in an accident? You could tell me something about it. You'd say, well, I think it's pretty low because I get, you kind of know, like I get in cars all the time and I really haven't gotten in a lot of accidents and it seems like that's pretty low. If I were to say to you, when you take a job, what, what do you think the likelihood is that you're going to like it? You, you know, it's not a hundred percent, right? And you know, it's not zero and you have to sort of force yourself to think about, well, where is it sitting in there? And the reason that you have to force yourself to do that is because you're doing it anyway. Right. When you choose, like, I'm going to take this job over that job, implicit in that decision is that you think that the one that you're choosing to take has a higher likelihood of actually working out for you. So it's already implicit in your decision. So you can't say, oh, that's too hard. I don't want to think about how likely that is. Like, that sounds like I'd just be guessing. Because the fact is that you're guessing anyway. So make it explicit. Because then you can like ask other people, how likely do you think I am to get this job? And then you can compare their answer with yours. And then you could say to them like, well, why are you, why do you have a different idea than I do? 
and it can create like really good discussion. And the better you are at kind of making yourself guess about how likely things are to occur, the better your decision making is going to become. And it's okay not to give in an exact answer. It's okay to give a range like you did. It's okay to say, well, I think it's like 100 pounds, but it could be as low as 15 and it could be as high as 600. Great. I'm happy that you gave me a range because now I know exactly how certain you are about it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I love what I love about this as you know, the coach in me, what I love about this is the process of making what was previously unconscious or that we were unaware of more aware. Yeah. And now we have more, well, not only more awareness, but as you've said, we can now solicit input from other people. We can check it against other references, right? It's, and so I can totally see where people might resist this. Well, I have no idea how likely that is, but the fact that we're already always making assessments. That's the thing. It's like, if you're, if you're choosing between the chicken and the fish, ultimately what you choose is the one that you think has the higher likelihood of working out for you. When you're deciding between two outfits, you're saying, I think this one has the better likelihood of me feeling comfortable or, you know, someone that I have a crush on actually thinking that I look cute or me making a good impression on my boss or whatever your goals are. You're saying this has the more likely, the higher likelihood of having those things happen. When you choose a route to work, you're saying, you know, back in the before times when we used to actually drive to work, you know, you're saying, I think this route has the higher likelihood of getting me to my place on time. Or maybe this one has the higher likelihood of being the more scenic drive, if that's what you, th- what your values are, right? So um, Netflix, when you choose something, I think I'm more likely to like this movie than this one. We're making these, we're making these judgments about the probability of things occurring all the time. They're just implicit. And somehow we feel like if they're implicit, then we can, like, we're not as scared of it. Like, it's not so hard. And if I ask you to do it explicitly, all of a sudden you say, like, well, I can't do that. I don't know. And it's like, okay, but you're doing it anyway. So let's try to, let's take a stab here. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. So that's the... That's step number four, assess the relative likelihood, right? right? Which you're encouraging us to get past our, well, how would I know our resistance to that to do it anyway? Right. And then you rinse and repeat for the other options. So now you take any other options, you do step one through four for each of those options. And then you, you can now compare them because you can say whatever my values are and those, your, everybody's values are different. Everybody's goals are different, right? What you want from a vacation might be different than what I want from a vacation. That's totally fine. So this is all for what your values are. You figure out, given the options that I have to consider, which one has the highest likelihood of making things go my way, making me get to whatever my goals are. And now you actually have a way to compare one thing to another. No, that it makes so much sense. And I remember, you know, a few years ago, I went pretty deep into some work with Tony Robbins with his organization. And I remember him saying all important decisions should be made on paper. You know, and then he went and he shared a framework that he's used and it was a little more complicated than this. I guess it works for him. That's great. But what I like about this is that we can do this. Any one of us could do this for anything that was important enough to us to, to take the time. It just takes a little, like, you have to be willing to do a little time traveling, right? You have to be willing to get yourself into the future and say, you know, what are those different branches of the tree? You know, and obviously you only want to things that think about things that are like a reasonable possibility, right? You don't want to include like an asteroid hits the earth. Like that's not very useful, but so you want to just think about the, you know, the reasonable things. It's really helpful if you can sort of define exactly what your goals are. So like, for example, if you're hiring a candidate, sometimes you're hiring for lots of lots of different things and you can certainly compare it that way. 
But sometimes you just are, you don't want turnover. And so you can literally think for any candidate that you see that meets a minimum requirement, you can just say, how likely do I think it is that the person's going to quit within a year? Super simple, right? Because that's, that's what you really care about for this particular decision. And then you can do that for each candidate and you can pick the candidate, assuming again, they meet a minimum requirement for competency. And you can pick the candidate that has the least likely chance of quitting in a year. It allows you to do these like apples to apples comparison. And it makes you start to think about what are my goals? What are my values? Do, do I really think this is going to move me toward or away? What are the likelihood of those things? And the nice thing about it that's so different than a pros and cons list is notice that this is what allows you to start a business that's going to bring clean water to the whole earth. Because when you think about the magnitude of the good that that's going to do, assuming that that's your goal, compared to the magnitude of all of these kind of bad outcomes, like it's going to be a lot of time and I'm going to spend some money or whatever, you can now look and say for my values, even though actually accomplishing this goal is low probability, the impact is so great that it outweighs all of this other stuff. I will get more out of the good stuff than the bad stuff here. And that's what allows you to get past that into things that maybe seem a little more far-fetched, you know, that are more moonshot-like because the impact is so high because we're including that idea of how much do I like the thing? How big of an impact will it have? Yeah, I, I like that. And I know what I love about this and about what you're teaching is just about the fact that decision making is a skill and we can get better at it. And when we do, our lives get better. That's exactly right. And we're able to contribute to others. It's it's really beautiful. So that's fantastic. Well, I want to I want to shift gears and, and, and move to the enlightening lightning round. But before I do, I know there's so much more in the book that we haven't covered and so much more even beyond that. And by the way, I, I, I you probably know this, but I listened to Tim Ferriss. He had Seth Godin do the books I've loved or whatever. And when Seth talked about that, the first chapter of Thinking in Bets, just the first chapter changed his life. I was like, that is amazing. I have to say, I love Seth so much. I was actually just emailing with him yesterday. And I met him, gosh, I think at this point it was like 10 years ago, maybe. No, yeah, it was close to a decade ago um, at this like retreat thing that we were like both speaking at. And he is such an amazing human. He's so passionate about his work. The thing that I love about him is his whole, like his passion is how do I really communicate simple ideas that will really change people's lives? And it's, he, he cares about that so deeply. And I just like, I, I adore him. I really do. Well, and I think that's what you're doing too. You know, these ideas that really do that, again, for most of us, we're unaware of them or we maybe we know them, but we don't put them into practice. And what you're sharing is, is really valuable. So I just, I just want to acknowledge that before I transition us, because I know there might be something more that you want to make a point to include in here. But is there anything we haven't covered either from how to decide or anything else? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think the only thing that I, I would say is that kind of back to your point about like Netflix and movies and whatnot is I know this sounds like a lot, right? I've got to sit down. I've got to think about like, what are my goals? What are my values? What, what options do I have available to me? And then I've got to start thinking about like the six step process. I want to say like, you need to know what a great decision process looks like to know when you can take shortcuts to actually not let your brain take you on those shortcuts that we talked about that don't lead you to a good place, but to understand when you have the type of decision where you can actually go pretty fast where if you're making a decision with your gut, it's kind of okay, it doesn't really matter. 
so I, you know, I set up all this stuff of like, here's what like the full Monte is going to look like. But then chapter seven, as you pointed out, which is where you got those stats from, is all about actually going fast and getting people out of analysis paralysis. Because the kind of strange thing about it is that we tend to go really fast on like pretty important decisions. And then we'll often get caught in analysis paralysis on things that are actually relatively inconsequential, like, you know, what are you watching on, on TV? I'm guilty of that. Yeah. <laughs> Not of watching on TV, but in analysis paralysis on probably insignificant decisions. And yeah, and, and the guess that I have about that is that I think that the, some of these insignificant decisions, like what should you order in a restaurant, feel really solvable. Like you should know what your own preferences are. If you ask enough people, they should be able to tell you like which dish, you know, it feels like a solvable problem. So we'll get caught up and you're going to get the feedback right away because you're going to get your dish in like two seconds. And then because of resulting, if the chicken's dry, you're going to be like, ah, I made a bad decision. And you're sort of trying to avoid that. Whereas some of these bigger decisions, like where to go to college, they feel really complicated and very burdensome, mushier, you know, so we'll just like wing it. But here's where we can sort of start to figure out like when can I go fast and when I can, can I go slow? And the, the first, the big tool that I want people to know is the happiness test. So here's how the happiness test goes. So brilliant. Let's say that we, you ordered some bad chicken and it was dry. It was like the dry, you were like, ah, it's a desert. Give me a huge pitcher of water. <laughs> Horrible chicken. And let's say that a year goes by and I see you and I say, Hey, brilliant. How's, how's your year been? So I was like, how's your year been? Pretty good. Pretty good, all things considered. I didn't realize just how much I actually don't miss traveling. <laughs> so it's ups and downs, definitely an anomaly, but overall pretty good. Say, by the way, I did not know how much I would not miss traveling too. So your year's been pretty good, great. So do you remember that chicken you had a year ago that kind of sucked? What night, what night was that again? Yeah, well, exactly, <laughs> it was exactly a year ago. I've caught you 365 days later. Oh yeah. So as you think about your happiness today, how big of an effect did that, did that chicken have on your happiness today? Almost none. Yeah. So what if I catch you in a month? How big of an effect over the course of the month did the one bad meal have for you? Virtually none. Yeah. What about a week later? A little bit, but still pretty minuscule. Yeah. So what we're getting at with the happiness test, and I really encourage people to apply this to decisions that they get really caught up in is what we're getting at is that when you think about that idea of kind of, you know, what's the upside and downside, like what's, how much is it going to allow you to advance towards your goals or retreat away from them? There are certain decisions that don't really have a big impact on that. And the reason why happiness is a good way to think about it is it, it's, it's an excellent proxy for just like achieving your goals. Like we're happier when we achieve our goals. So you can just think about your overall happiness as a way to sort of think about that. And the longer, basically the, the shorter the period rather, in which it's not really gonna affect your happiness. What that means is that that's the, a lower impact decision. So when you think about it, it's like, how much does a bad marriage affect your happiness versus a bad date, right? Well, a bad date in a year probably isn't gonna matter much to you. A bad marriage is. And so what we understand from that is that, look, when you're talking about who to go on a first date with, you don't need to take that much time with it, right? Because like, if it's bad, it's bad. Like, you know, you call your friend, you have your friend call you in the middle of the date, you get out of it, it's fine right? But, but marriage is a bigger deal, right? Because marriage is going to be a bigger impact decision. And so by using the happiness test, what we can kind of start to figure out is here's a decision where when I think about that six step process and really fully like thinking about what do those outcomes look like? How much do I like or dislike them? 
how likely are they to occur, all that stuff. We would want to do that more blown out process for decisions that are going to have longer term impacts. But the things that are going to have these short term impacts, flip a coin. Who cares if your meal is bad? And by the way, if you watch a bad movie on Netflix, you don't have to finish it. Right. You can turn it off. You mean I don't have to finish every book I start? (laughs) No, no. But we think we do. We think like, oh, but I chose it. It's a failure. No, you didn't like it. So what? Right? Like you're trying to decide between two books, flip a coin. You're trying to decide once you got like, once you sort of got the world sorted into here are things on the menu I like and here are things I don't. Flip a coin. It doesn't really matter how it turns out. It's going to make no difference to your life. And this allows us to stop spending like seven weeks a year trying to figure out these decisions, right? So I, I think that that's, I just want to get that across that the book offers like this very robust process that you would take a lot of time with, but then it also tells you, but by the way, mostly you should speed up. Yeah. No, I, I love that. Thank you for, for pointing that out. Okay. Awesome. Well, with your permission, I'm going to go ahead and transition us yes, to the enlightening lightning round. Let's do it. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. I'm, I'm enjoying this very much. All right. Again, this is a series. It's a variety of questions, okay. many different topics. All right. Can't be worse than the meaning of life. So I'm ready to go. <laughs> My aim is to ask the question and for the most part, stand aside. You're welcome to answer as long as you want, but I'll try to make it fast. Okay. So question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a, (laughs) Oh, well, life is like a game of poker. I guess I have to say I wrote a (laughs) book on the premise. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Number two. Here I'm borrowing Peter Thiel's famous question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? Mm. Well, I feel like recently it would be that the way to combat ideas that you don't like is with your own ideas. I feel like fewer people agree with that today than used to. But something I really believe that you need to have ideas collide in the public square and that the best ideas will win. And I, I believe that really strongly. So maybe that. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. Question number three. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Mm. Luck plus skill equals life. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. Question number four. What book other than one of your own have you gifted or recommended most often? I have to narrow this down to one. You can have multiple. It's okay. Okay. Like the problem is that there's like different versions of me. So just kind of on the professional side, it would be things like Thinking Fast and Slow and Super Forecasting from Phil Tetlock. The Psychology of Money, which just came out, is really good. I've been recommending that a lot recently. There's The Biggest Bluff from Maria Konnikova, which is really an, a, a really amazing book. I mean, there's just like so much like nudge from Thaler and Sunstein. There, there's so much in that space that's so, so good in decision making. And I would, I would really encourage people to just kind of explore that space. Because I can't recommend all the things that I would, like, I would give you a humongous, tall pile of those. But on the the kind of just nonfiction side, I would say probably the book that I've recommended the most on the nonfiction side would be, I think, I think probably Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. It's really an amazing book. Okay. Thank you. And what are you currently reading? So actually, 
actually, so the book that I'm reading right now is called How to Change. It will be out in the spring, though. I am lucky enough to have an advanced copy of it from Katie Milkman. And it's an amazing book. You have to have her on, by the way, which is really about, like, how do we actually change our habits? Like, how do we change things about our lives for the best? When is the best time to do that? Like, how, how do we do it in order to make really lasting, positive change in our life? And it's, it's an incredible book. She's a professor at Wharton super smart. So that's what, that's actually mainly what I'm reading right now is um, I'm trying to finish commenting on that book for her, but it's so good. Wow. That, that sounds great. I don't know Katie, but I will definitely reach out to her. It sounds like a book. It's right up your alley. Super right up your alley. Okay. Question number five. This one relates to travel, you know, back in the good old days (laughs) when, when we all traveled a lot. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm, I'm still collecting these because I know they're valuable. So you traveled a ton. What is one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Food. So I'm vegan and by some, mostly by choice. And then I'm I'm gluten-free by necessity. So that's a hard combo. It's reasonable. It's pretty easy to find like vegan foods. And it's pretty easy to find gluten-free foods. Like the combo is super hard. So if I don't travel with food, I end up having to eat things that are pretty highly processed, which is another thing that I really don't eat. I don't, I really try not to eat processed sugar at all. So I, it, I can be pretty miserable if I don't actually pack, make sure that I've sort of got food with me when I'm traveling. So that's really the main thing, honestly, is I pack food and it makes my travel much more enjoyable. And probably those traveling with you too, <laughs> if you're, if you're pleasant. Yeah, that's true. I mean, like if I know the destination I'm going to, usually there'll be something along the way, but airports and airplanes are, are particularly bad and you know, I want to be able to eat. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, and some of that answer might be part of the answer to this next question, which is what's something you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Oh gosh. Well, when I was young, I smoked, like very young, I smoked as did everybody of when I was young. So I've definitely stopped doing that and smoked in a long time. You know, that was back when like, you know what I remember? I, I remember when I was growing up, there was this one family and they had one of those little red cross signs that said, please don't smoke in, indoor in our house or whatever, please, no smoking here. And I remember like, even as a little kid, just thinking like, oh, these people are so rude. <laughs> like, because this was, you know, I grew up at a time when everybody had ashtrays in every room and pretty much any adult that I knew smoked. And so by the time you were a teenager, you were generally smoking as well. But I luckily quit that in my 20s. So, but, so that wasn't recent. So I'll, I'll tell you what it is. Actually, it has to do with the veganism. So I've been like a, a somewhat, what I would say is a somewhat vegan for like almost 15 years. But the thing about me is like, I, I love meat and cheese. Yum. Steak. So good. So what, what would happen is that I would go through sort of periods where I was maybe like cheating a little bit more. Um, where I would say like, well, if I'm in a restaurant and they happen to have cheese on the salad, I, I won't say no. Um, and a, co- a few years ago, I just realized like I really didn't feel well. Like dare, I don't do not, the dairy thing is actually related to the gluten problem with me. And I just didn't feel good. And I made a decision a couple years ago that like that was it. Like there was no more like, oh, I'll just have a bite of my husband's steak or if there's cheese on my salad or something like that. And I just don't, I just like was like, I'm going to be very strict vegan. And I've been totally strict since then. And I have to say it's reversed a whole bunch of issues for me. Like I, arthritis runs in my family and I was having some joint issues that are completely gone. And in terms of the, the issues, which are gastro, gastrointestinal that were going on with me, like that's all 
you know, resolve. It's like, it's really, I would say that's like the main thing is just deciding like, no, I'm going to be completely strict on that, on being vegan. It's been a life changer for me. Yeah, that's great. And my experience is some decisions are easier to have an absolute line, right? And not allow that. Well, I talk about that in the book, right? So I talk about like this difference between like a category decision and just sort of saying something like, well, I'd like to eat less meat and dairy. So when I do that, that, that allows me, like if I'm in a restaurant, I've got to make a brand new decision and it gives me a chance to mess it up. Even though I know it's better for my health, I'm supposed to be eating a low inflammatory diet, which naturally would not really occur in, uh, you know, include dairy. Once I made the decision, like, no, I'm really like, I'm a vegan. I'm not a 95% vegan. I'm a vegan. I have not literally never strayed since then because I made a category decision. And, and that's actually a really helpful concept. I actually explore that a lot in this book about like these kind of advanced decisions that you can make that can really help you achieve your goals. Yeah. And, and especially, and I know I'm, I'm on a little tangent in the lightning round, but about the power these have be when they reach the identity level, right? And that it's no longer requires willpower. It's just a choice we've made. Right. It, it's who I am. I'm a vegan. Yeah. That's, that's one of the things that is so powerful, I think, in helping people have the experience of life they want and produce their outcomes, that it is, it's almost hidden in the decision. But anyway, okay. And then just a, a few more questions. So coming down the stretch here, question number seven, what's one thing you wish every American knew? That not everything they believe is true. What? <laughs> it's not? No, uh, it's not. Not everything you believe is true. And believe it or not, some things that, that people who are not politically aligned with you believe are true, more true than the things that you believe and vice versa. Just, you know, I, and what I would encourage people to do, like think about something you believed when you're, you were like 15 with your whole heart would have fought somebody for it. But you now look back and you're like, oh, that really wasn't true. <laughs> yeah. Do you think for a second there are beliefs that you hold today that also are like that? Of course there are. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay. Question number eight, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? Yeah. So I, this one's an easy one for me. When I was young, I wanted to win every argument, you know, uh, first of all, I believed I was right. <laughs> uh, and if I felt that I was right, I needed the other person to know that I was right. And the thing that I learned was you don't need to do that. Like you can choose the times when it really matters. This actually has to do with the happiness test a little bit. When does it really matter? When is it something that's really consequential where if you don't really stand your ground and get the person to see it your way, it's, it's going to make a difference in a year to your relationship. And when does it not really matter? Right? Like they want to take a certain route to work or they're really insisting on something that's really dumb or they, you know, whatever. Like I just, I, I really am very choosy and it's not to say that like I get like I get run over. It's when am I really going to sit and have a fight with it as opposed to say, I, you know what, sweetie, it's fine. Yeah. It sounds like a sign of wisdom. I'm not placating anybody. I'm saying there are things, I have things in categories. This is something I really care about. And I'm going to keep my capital over here. And the other stuff, it's like, it just doesn't matter in the long run. So why am I making a thing out of it? That was something that I was very bad at when I was younger. And I think that's something that I've really learned along the way. And aside from the last question here is about money. We talked about almost all the big things in life. Aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money? Or what's something you're always sure to do with it or you never do with it? I'm going to go a little sideways on this. I have never done anything where the end goal was money. And I think that's really important. 
I mean, I kind of think back to what we talked about in the beginning about Paul Tillich. Pick something you love. Now, and, and obviously I understand like you have to meet your basic needs. Like I get that. Like I, I'm talking about beyond your basic needs, right? Because I understand there's some people who like that, you know, they have other things that they love. And so they're going and, and doing something which makes just enough money for them to, to go and do other things you love. But if you're somebody who wants to love what you do, make it about loving what you do and don't make it about loving money and thinking that, that you can do the thing just because you're going to get rich. I just think it's so important because in the end, it's like the money's really not that important as long as your basic needs are met. And I'm not trying to downplay the part about the basic needs. Obviously, it's really, really important to have those basic needs met. I get it. Like, I, I'm not downplaying that at all. In fact, I would like to raise that up and let people really understand that when they when they talk about, well, if you just pursue your passion, it's like, okay, but for some people, they've got to just pursue like basic needs. But beyond that, if your goal is to make money, I just think ultimately you're going to be unhappy. You, you have to find where, you know, that, that, that place of passion for you, which you, where you really love what you do, or make a reasoned decision that I'm really passionate about backpacking every weekend. So I want to make just enough money to be able to do that. Where again, it's still not about the money. It's about how are you getting to your passion? Yeah, I, I really appreciate that answer. And, and I, I know many wealthy people, many people who have money. Maybe they're not actually wealthy then, huh? <laughs> but I know many people with a lot of money who aren't happy. They don't seem happy yeah. at least. And I also love hearing you say, you know, because I understand you've won more than $4 million playing poker that you say you've never done things for the money. It's really cool to me to think that that wasn't your motivation in that or any other area. Oh, it, actually, so in poker, it can't be the motivation. And the, the reason that it can't, it's very bad if that's the motivation, because you have these chips that are representative of money, but the chips are just tools to get somebody to fold or to get somebody to call or to whatever. And if you actually start to connect that to the money, like I was in situations where I might be bluffing and the amount of money that I had to push into the center of the pot was a small house. And if I had that in my head, that would have been really bad. Like I actually had to think about, it was all about the strategy and, and sort of how am I sort of executing the strategy and tactics and to get me to the, the goals that I had in terms of what I was trying to accomplish in a particular hand or a particular game. Yeah, it's none of it has ever, I've, it's never been about money for me. Yeah, awesome. Okay, well, the very final question in the Enlightening Lightning Round here is kind of a gimme <laughs> because it's about if people want to learn more from you, or if they wanted to connect with you, assuming you're okay with that, what would you have them do? Okay, so that's actually an easy one. So yes, I do want them to connect with me. First of all, you can go to andyduke.com and you can find out about me. You can certainly find out how to go get, how to decide the new book and also the old book, Thinking in Bets, which is not that old, it's only two years old. But also on there, there's a contact form. And I cannot say that I am 100% on this if I'm thinking probabilistically, but I do try to respond to everybody. And I have to say that like these conversations that I have with readers, I really enjoy them. And I find that I learn so much from these conversations that I have with people who are interacting with my work. And in fact, if I had to think about why I wrote How to Decide, it was actually because of conversations with my readers that they had read this first book of mine that is sort of a conceptual book about uncertainty and how do you sort of deal with like luck and the fact that you don't have control over a lot of stuff. And they said, okay, but then like, I want to know how do I actually make a good decision? And I was like, oh, and I had enough people who I had conversations 
conversations with where I thought that would probably be a useful thing for me to write about. So I have, I have people who contacted me and actually wrote to me and so, you know, and I end up in these email exchanges with people. So I, if you don't, if I don't respond, please don't be mad at me because sometimes I don't get to hundred percent of them, but I do try. I, I do make an attempt. Um, so that's one thing you can find me on Twitter at Annie Duke for sure. I'd love it if people would check out the Alliance for Decision Education, which is a nonprofit that I founded, co-founded rather. Co-founded is very important here. And what we're trying to do is sort of in the same way that social and emotional learning has become something that is in most schools. We're thinking again about like, what are the real skills that kids need? And we think that these kinds of decision skills are really important. The kind of stuff that I write about that we don't really teach kids, like what does a good decision look like? How would you make one? And instead, we're teaching kids like trigonometry. And I suppose that's great if you're raising barns or if eventually you're going to become an engineer. But I feel like you can probably take trigonometry later in life if you're going to be an engineer. And perhaps that's not such an important skill, particularly for a healthy society and a healthy democracy, as teaching people how, like, how do you think about information? How do you figure out what's true? How do you make decisions? That's what we're trying to do. And it's broadly the field of decision education and trying to get that into schools in the same way that social emotional learning is in there. So I would love it if people would go check out the Alliance for Decision Education. Awesome. I hope they do. Okay. Well, I know we're, we're just about at the end of our time, but um, I wonder if you're okay with just maybe one or two more questions about writing and creativity or if you want to. Okay. So we, I'll just ask you this. I'm curious to know what your routine is as a writer when you have a project that you're engaged in, but I also want to be sure that we get to what advice or encouragement would you give to people listening? And then maybe we can wrap with that. Sure. I can give you those two pretty easily. So it's taken me a while to discover sort of what my strengths and, and weaknesses are as a writer. And my the weakness that I have as a writer is that I, I find it very hard to go move on from a sentence that I'm not happy with. So in a way that is not true for me when I'm speaking. And it's also in a way that's not true for me when I'm commenting on somebody else's work. So I really am somebody who says, like, embrace that stuff and figure out what am I supposed to do about it. And so what I'll do is I'll comment in my own drafts, and then I'll take those comments and actually turn them into text because I'm much freer when I'm commenting as opposed to actually directly editing. But the other thing that I figured out about myself is that the best way for me to write a first draft is actually to speak it. So I have someone who I tell it to. It gets recorded. They send me a transcript that's a cleaned up transcript, and then that that's my starting process because... I'm just better that way. And then I actually take that and the about the second to the last draft of, of when I'm in, involved in writing a book, I have someone read it to me and I actually edit it while I'm in the car. So I'm not looking at it. So I have to hear it. And then I edit it, hearing it. And I find that that also solves another problem that I have, which is it sort of s- simplifies a little bit. It makes it a little bit more within grasp of somebody. You know, it grounds the language. It, you know, I think think it does a lot of good things for things that I'm not so great at because I come from an academic background and I think it it makes it feel a little bit less dense, which I, I absolutely prefer. So I do a lot of this kind of verbal work and sort of commenting work on my own stuff because I just have trouble like completing a sentence otherwise because I want it to be just right. So that's that's kind of like in terms of my own, that's a big habit for me. And then in terms of like advice that I would give to people, I'd say like just write. Like it doesn't have to be great, but the reason why I think it's writing is so important is that there is nothing better for exploring your own ideas and figuring out what you know and what you don't know. Because I think that we all sound pretty great when we're thinking about it in the shower. 
But when you actually put it down on a piece of paper and you have to explain it to somebody else, such that like you would be satisfied with the explanation, you feel like they could understand it. It really allows you to workshop your own ideas and figure out what's, what's ridiculous. What is that thing that sounded so amazing in my head, but isn't so great now that I've put it down on paper. And it, it just allows you to like explore and clarify your own thoughts in a way that like, I find that I never learn more than, than during those periods where I'm actually writing a book. Because you have to, like you, you have to figure out what is it that I think and what is it that I'm trying to communicate in a way that you're not forced to when you don't actually put yourself through that process. And so I would really encourage everybody to, even if it's just a journal, like just, just write. That's powerful. Thank you. Well, Annie, thank you so much for sharing so generously of your time and your experience and your insight. One thing I do want to let you know is that as a gesture of appreciation, I've gone on to Kiva.org, the micro-lending site, oh my and gosh, I've made a yes. $100 micro-loan to a woman named Patricia in Liberia who will use this money to buy some clothing, some used clothing to then resell to improve the quality of life for her and in her community. Oh my gosh, I love that. I actually, yeah, I do Kiva as well. Thank you. Awesome. That's, very, that's wonderful. Thank you. So thank you so much for, for, for being here and for the work you're doing. I'm, I'm so grateful that we've connected and I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your book, but I know October is going to be <laughs> a great release. So it'll, uh, it'll be here soon enough. What can I do? I can't control it. I, I can't control that or Vlad Vladimir Putin. That's what we've learned today. <laughs> yes. Well, I will definitely coordinate with your team about getting it released and help get the word out about it. Thank you so much. This was lovely. Thank you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com. 